0: Um, We're going to do chapter four and five of this book tonight. Does anybody have any comments or questions or thoughts about these chapters of the previous ones? Yes? Well, just a general thing. I was telling Steve the other night, I am just so impressed by Swami's knowledge about so much. I mean, you know, all these guys that he's talking So clear. I mean, the of is... it's simple but it's clear oh yeah it's a, it is you could be easily fooled because it's so clear <laughs> <laughs> no no what you're you know, saying I mean, is that there's a connection in people's minds between something being hard to understand and it being profound yeah. and the fact that Swami works so hard to make it simple makes people think that it's simplistic when it's not at all or you just run, read right through it and it seems so easy to read you don't realize what's been implied. This is a very interesting chapter in that respect for exactly those reasons. Um, any other? Yes, Steve? You no, know, and that's really the, the rust of one of his arguments that uh, in one of those two chapters, for instance, somebody saying, well, it's Plato. So yeah. uh, mm-hmm. You have to believe that it. It, it must be true because such a deep thinker and really hardly expand out to many of the yeah, Swami is very much into the emperor is not wearing any new clothes sort of um, this particular chapter, ask first will it work is a really important chapter for that kind of thinking. He's really taking on a real sacred cow of um, people's intellectual thinking intellectuality and um, it's just a, it's a very important chapter to understand and develop the strength of will and of character to think through. Let me try to put it in context. Is there any more comments or questions before I do this? You know, one of the realities that um, as devotees of this path we have to work with all the time is really developing a faith and appreciation for what Master taught us and recognizing um, that it is sufficient and that we don't have to be impressed by other important individuals um, or feel that just because something is widely regarded or highly accepted or touted or something like that, that there must be something wrong with us if we don't appreciate it. I got an F on it was my first F in college on the paper I was supposed to write about Plato's Republic. I can't claim now was it was because of any great insight. I think it was more that I was out partying and I didn't want to write it. I wrote an alternate I wrote an alternate essay uh, instead of writing on the subject because the subject just bored me. I just couldn't I couldn't get interested in that. That's all I really remember, is that I was unable to read it. Now, I don't even remember why, but I was very unable to read it. I was extremely interested in other things, so I wrote an alternate essay and got an F, <laughs> which I thought was really not very nice, because the other essay was pretty good. <laughs> and somehow I had justified it. The details of it ex- escaped me. But uh, I've always found it hard to read things that weren't um, relevant, that, that, did, that didn't have some deep meaning. Of course, I quit college altogether because it wasn't relevant. It was just very, very much of a, I was just rereading Swami's own autobiography about just his, the same thing, which is getting involved in this academic inclination to feel the need to be always objective and having that objectivity be such a value that that it means that you are never committed and that you always have to consider the possible reasonableness of things even when they are ridiculous and Swami takes on here, he takes on Plato's Republic and he takes on communism and just sort of goes at them from a most common sense point of view but you realize how few people really approach anything in their lives from a very practical point of view One of the things in the early years of Ananda, back in the late 60s and the early 70s, when there was like a whole magazine devoted to communities and there was a whole movement about communities, there was just this whole big energy about intentional communities that were starting. No one would ever pay attention to Ananda and uh, we just couldn't get get anybody to take us seriously. And I remember I've shared with some of you when I went to a conference up in Oregon, this was many years ago. And it was a conference about communities and I was there representing Ananda. And I had a whole slideshow about Ananda and I mean I was entirely qualified to speak about it. And I couldn't get anybody to listen to me or to put me on any of the programs or anything. I mean we literally sat for an hour and a half and listened to these people talk about land they hope to purchase, pictures of land they hope to purchase and their ideas for how they might build a community. And all of that... Uh, was done much more seriously than I could get anybody to listen to us. Um, there were two reasons for that. One of them was uh, I've, I've explained to you, all, I t- spoke to Peter Caddy, who was the founder of Findhorn at the time, and I sort of said to him, Why are people so disinterested in what I have to offer? And his answer was very astute. And he was contrasting Ananda to Findhorn, and he said, Findhorn promises heaven on earth, and Ananda demands that you transcend earth in order to achieve heaven he said, and naturally our promise is more popular. And it was, he was honest enough to admit it, that it was more popular. The problem is, of course, it's not a real promise. It's not a practical promise and it doesn't work. But all throughout the ages, people have been much more interested in a beautiful theory than they have been in something that actually has a tangible reality. And Ananda was greatly criticized in the early years for not being radical enough. We were just following a basic economic system, people owned their own property, they got paid money, they had their little houses, they paid rent. It was like when people looked at it from the outside, they couldn't see a revolution in it. They could just see a continuation of business as usual and they were much more interested in people who promised, like Peter Caddy said, they were promising that they were going to just transform everything and it was going to be completely different and it would be a world like no one had ever seen before. And Swami just wasn't making any such promises. He was promising that things would be a little better. In fact, he wasn't promising anything at all. He was inviting us to serve God and that that was going to be its own reward. But it was so uh, uh, such a good example. And, And for those of us associated with Ananda, sometimes it was very, very confusing. It was always confusing to me because instinctively... I've always been so exceedingly practical that I've always always been just instinctively very suspicious of people whose promises are not grounded in practicality. And that is sort of one of the characteristics of Ananda people. We're just much more interested in will it work. We're not nearly so interested in people who come to Ananda who have this intellectual fascination with all these different ideas that are not grounded in the day-to-dayness usually get bored with us and go away. And we invariably get bored with them and do not necessarily mourn when they go away. Because there really are two different kinds of people. There are people who like to roll up their sleeves and do something that really happens, and then, then there's other people who like to dream. And sometimes they overlap. Sometimes people with dreamy ideas nonetheless get power, as he describes at great length with the communist ideal. But he's, he's trying to get us to learn how to think, about what people say, and not to be too credulous, merely because either authority or tradition or individuals sort of try to hand us this idea that it should be true, and therefore it must be true. The question always is not how beautifully it can be spun out, but whether there's an actual practical dimension to it. That, that's, that's nearly the, a, a law of Ananda, is, is the phrase that Master said to Swami at a certain point in his early training. He said, quite simply, you have to be practical in your idealism. And that's a very simple point, but an extremely fundamental one. I recall that I had an interesting experience of that with a a woman that I was trying to um, attract to Ananda. She never actually embraced the path and went off and did other things. But she was a young woman at that time, um, just graduating from uh, Stanford, as it happened. And she was sort of looking at me, trying to, to figure out what, what direction to take with her own life. And she uh, asked me the question, sort of, she was like challenging my choices in life. This was not very long ago, so I was essentially twice her age. And uh, she asked me if I was happy. Now, of course... When, almost, when you ask almost anybody if they're happy, they'll almost always say yes, because most people don't like to admit they're unhappy, or else they have simply reduced their concept of what happiness is to fit what they are. So it's, it's not a very real question. So my first answer was, yes, of course I'm happy. But I didn't feel that that was really to the heart of her question. Um, so I thought for a moment, and I gave her a very different answer. I said, you know, when I was her age at that time. I was very, very idealistic. I've always been very idealistic. I've always had in my I've always had the thought um, that great and wonderful things were possible in life and that you didn't just have to end up nowhere. It was ironic dealing with this particular young woman because just personal insights here, my great fear when I was growing up, when I was a teenager and then went briefly to college was that I would end up married with children living in a suburb somewhere and the epitome of my fear was that I would have one of those station wagons with the wooden sides (laughs) just somehow it epitomized to me just um, just everything that I I didn't want. I I did in fact um, want to get married and I did want to have children but I didn't want to live that life. I wanted to have something else so I was terrified that I would just end up there I had even a note to myself that I was afraid I would marry a dentist. I don't know where that came from or not. Artie used to say that there were three girls in her family fairly close in age and when most of the father's salary was going to straighten their teeth, the mother used to line the children up and have them repeat after her, I will marry an orthodontist. <laughs> they all have beautiful smiles <laughs> at great expense at this point. But... Uh, and then this young woman that I was talking about, too, was very afraid that if she got too interested in what I was doing, she would end up without that station wagon in that house in the suburbs. It was sort of like a, a dichotomy that we were discussing. She was, had this dream and she was afraid she would lose it, and to me it had always looked like a, a prison and I was hoping I would escape for it. I mean, it's, you, you have, we have to learn, one of Swami's fundamental themes here, from the beginning of the book, is that one of the things that's the main thing that's wrong with so many of these theories is that they fail to take into account how individual people are. And do you recall the first chapter we were we were talking about that, that one point that Swami was coming down to that there seems to be no meaning because it all can go in so many different directions. But what that's really saying is that it all begins from the individual. And that if we start all of our understanding about society and culture and communities from the individual then the whole model follows. Um, but if we don't, everything becomes a travesty, and that's how he, he describes uh, communism in this one. But what I said in any case, back to this woman, was that I'm a very idealistic person, and I feel that in my life I have never had to compromise, and that I've never, I've never from the beginning to the moment I am now, felt that I've had to betray my ideals in order to make my life work. And I think that's quite remarkable. And that's not really about me, that's really about the teachings of self-realization. That's not to say that exactly the same ideas that I started with I still have, but they're not really very far away either. I've refined my understanding and my articulation of them, but they're not really that different because it really is a system that works. It's a very practical set of ideals, and it's a set of ideals that's based entirely on the individual, and all of life focusing back to that source point, which is what we do with our own consciousness. Last night in our satsang group, we were talking about the Vaishya, we were talking about politics, we were talking about Vaisha versus Kshatriya these are the two caste levels that we progress through as we evolve. And the vaisya level, which is the level of a merchant, is the way it's characterized, is the level at which um, we're always thinking about trading. We need something. If we're going to give, we need to get. But that wasn't the relevant point. The vaisya level of consciousness thinks in, in this key way. It, the vaisya level feels that its suffering is the result of external conditions which affect the way I feel and therefore the avoidance of suffering comes from developing the willpower and the energy or whatever it might be to control and change external circumstances sufficiently so that I will no longer be in pain. Now a great deal of social action um, and what passes for selflessness in trying to accomplish good things in the world it's not necessarily bad but it fundamentally is vaisha in the way people are thinking there's some anxiety some suffering that's created by certain conditions whether it's the proliferation of nuclear weapons whether it's the fear that uh, we're going to run out of oxygen whether the ozone layer is going to be destroyed whether the presence of homeless people makes me so anxious i have to do something about it And and that is not to say that good actions don't come out of the vaisha level, but if, if the underlying attitude is that I'm suffering because of an external circumstance and I've got to change circumstances in order to feel safe, then we're always in a vulnerable position. Because no matter how dynamic you are, no matter how effective you can be against the world, ultimately we're not in charge. And there's a lot of uh, New Age kind of thoughts now about how if we all just affirm together and enough of us affirm the right thing. And it's a very egocentric view of reality that that somehow this whole creation is just dependent on our little human minds and we can just put them together. It doesn't take into account that there's a a superconscious power, even our own superconscious power that is not of the ego that's really making this world happen. So part of the idealism that when I speak of myself that I have come to understand, but again I was born with this to a certain extent. I mean I I had it when I was young. I only flirted for a short time with trying to make the world better because it seemed so self-evidently impossible, um, and I didn't want to be miserable. My my entire intention throughout life is is to be is to not be miserable, and uh, and I've always been willing to try at least try hard to do something to not be miserable. But then the realization that the real idealism is about changing our consciousness. And that's what the Kshatriya <laughs> understands. The Kshatri understands that I suffer because of my internal relationship to my experiences. And if I change my internal relationship, then the world can go on as it wishes, but that's the battle that I have to fight. Now that doesn't mean that you don't participate in shifting the world. But you recognize that it, it, your happiness or unhappiness is never, you're never going to be safe just by making that world okay. You'll only be safe if you make your internal world okay. And even if you do get engaged in trying to improve the planet, which all of us are deeply engaged in at this point, you're doing it from the understanding that it's right for me to do. Not that I will, unless I can make the world conform, I'll be happy. Now. Swamiji's question about will it work is really a lot about this. It's it's about not just spinning a theory that I hope I can impose on the world. And a lot of times people who really don't want, or if we ourselves really don't want to engage in something that actually has nuts and bolts practicality, we get enamored of theories. And whether it's communism or Plato or just enamorative theories of how we really think things ought to be without ever just doing that really hard work to think about what is human nature and how does it really relate. And so Swami's whole discussion here over and over in this chapter about will it work is really a discussion of human nature. And the whole story of this whole book He's really understanding what actually makes people tick. It's such a simple premise, which is if you're going to talk about any social system or any, any possibility of communities, it has to begin with the people involved. And when even in those early years of Ananda, Swami's theory was always this. I mean, he didn't have all these books so clearly articulated, um, written out in this form. He had it clear in his own mind, which is very simple. Systems do not create perfect people. You can get the most perfect system and it simply won't create perfect people. And that's why he talks about um, how, how um, grotesque is the word he uses at times. The whole communist ideal, uh, the way it's intellectualized, as he puts it in the coffee houses and the living rooms of America and England, compared to the way it actually had to be acted out. Because it was fraudulent from its inception. And because it, 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 it just spun this theory of, of uh, this praise for low consciousness and this praise for um, bringing everyone down to the lowest level without giving them anything to aspire to. And that anyone who really understands themselves or understands people around them will see that that just really won't bring about the kind of upliftment that, that it promises. And more than that, as he talks when he goes on to the further chapters, he just talks about the fact that, and this is where he said at the very beginning, the only thing, uh, if, if the individual is the center, this was the first chapter that he was writing, you can't impose, individuals will move according to their own reality. And that, uh, that reality is completely eccentric. It can't be dictated by theories. And he, um, he talks about Plato's system How could it ever work when everything is referred back to some idea that somebody um, has of it instead of looking first at the people throughout the years of Ananda? The single most obvious quality is that it's always been done from the individuals involved first. And bear in mind, even though Swamiji is talking about communism and Plato and so on like that, what he's really talking about is how to form these ideal societies. And he tells this whole story without ever talking about our history. But our history, which he makes reference to every once in a while without going into it in detail, is the truth of how will it really work. And the emphasis that Ananda has always been on understanding really what people are really capable of doing. One of the things that, um, when I reflect on, on why, why is it that Swamiji is so, extraordinarily successful as a leader. it's Among the many things are the fact that he's always looking when he answers any question, not at any theory, but he's always looking right at the individual or individuals involved and asking what will actually help this person move toward what it is that they need to move toward. And he has a genius for giving everyone a positive step. And part of the, the, what makes that possible is that he always asks first, not is this a beautiful theory that I can impose, but what is the most beautiful idea that a person will actually accept? Because wherever we stand, wherever we are on our uh, pathway towards self-realization, there's always going to be a next step for us. And if those who are responsible for helping us progress always look at you and say, well, this could be your next step, and ask the question first, not, not what should you do, but what can you do? Swami has maintained his role as the provider of hope, really for hundreds, thousands of people through the years, by that simple mechanism, asking first, will it work? Asking first, is it practical? Before he gives anyone advice, he asks first, is this practical? Is this person ready for it? Is it something they have access to? Does it move them upward in their evolution enough, but not too much? And even in the development of the communities, he's always had ideas of what was possible. But all of those ideas have always been based on whether or not there were individuals who could carry it out. And so there's there's never been, ever been, a blueprint first. You know, Plato writes out this whole long thing which people have taken seriously for so long and if, if you know, I wasn't part of a community I don't know why I didn't read it then I think I was just rebellious but he just sort of says this will happen and that will happen and then people will do this and one of the things I love that Swami comments about is he said one of the fallacies is the assumption that human nature can be predicted that human actions can be predicted and that, that assumes this sort of... Uh, singularity about human nature and the simplicity about human nature, which is completely untrue. And I love the example he gives of um, the people trying to test to see who would be heroes in battle and just not having any, any, any possibility of really telling who was going to be heroic. It was, it was completely beyond anticipation because you just, unless you're a master, you can't really look into human nature sufficiently to say... And so it's always uh, uh, based on knowing individuals. But Swamiji also um, points out that, just a moment. Swami also points out that this whole commitment to theory rather than to practicality, especially imposed on a gigantic scale, has caused untold suffering in human life. And so his plea to be more sensible about this is not merely a plea for the sake of small communities, but it's also a plea um, because, because well-meaning people have supported really um, horrible social experiments because we're too, too caught up in wrong thinking. And so there's, there's, more, uh, there's more at stake here and it's it's also, let me think how to say it. Swamiji is trying to help us with this book, to develop a whole new way of thinking about things. I remember many years ago, we were having some difficulties at Ananda Village. We were being persecuted in some way. I think it was the period of time when people kept knocking our mailbox down. We used to have a mailbox out on Tylerford Road, and our neighbors didn't like Ananda because they considered us to be establishment and organized and bringing too many people into the area. And we were the only thing that remotely resembled authority anywhere around. So all of people's rebellious energy was directed at us. And we got into this great battle with the neighbors about our mailbox being being knocked down. And they would knock it down and we would put it up again. Now we don't even have a mailbox on Tyler Foot Road. We just solved it by getting the mailman to bring the mail in. I remember finally Kent White dug a big hole and put four feet of cement in and then put a cement column up and then put this big thing on top of it and bolted it all around and I mean you couldn't knock it down with a tractor and it lasted for a really long time but then somebody pried the box off the top (laughs) and then for many, many, many months even for years our mailbox was this column because nobody could get it out either this huge column sitting there with this flat thing and somebody always had to be on the road because the mailman would just put the mail bag on the platform and somebody had to be there to greet it. It did work. There was no possibility of knocking it over but it didn't accomplish the goal either. Okay, one more. Um, but it was during that period of time when the mailbox was being destroyed on a regular basis and I recall just sort of making some comment to Swami about um, the uphill battle that we were facing in establishing Ananda. And he was, we were in the dome at that time, what is the living room of Crystal Hermitage, which was the only house he had then. And, uh, I mean, the whole house was just the dome, is what I mean to say. Now it's just the living room of that whole complex, but that was all there was, and there were all these sort of half walls that divided it into sections, but still it was one giant room. And he was sitting and he was typing, and I was in the kitchen, which was just, you know, a few feet away. And uh, I just remember him sort of shouting over the um, railing there, he said, well, he said, Asha, we're trying to transform all of society and naturally it will take a little time. <laughs> and oftentimes when we've encountered resistance or difficulties or a lack of understanding, I always think, well, we're trying to transform all of society and naturally it will take a little time. And this particular book that Swamiji has written has, a, has this twofold purpose to it. One is really, he's really trying to explain really how to create a better society, hope for a better world, the small community solution. And in the process of doing that, he's trying to explain to us why many things that people have through, through time thought would really do that aren't really the right answer. And by both directions, by positively expressing what it really does look like, and by negatively expressing what it doesn't look like, he's trying to get us tuned into this. And one of the factors that's happening at this particular transition between Kali Yuga and Dwapara Yuga, which is very important, is that as Dwapara Yuga comes in and there's more and more energy available to human consciousness and there's more energy available on the planet and it's more expanded and we sort of think in grander terms, but the, the premises of Kali Yuga are not gone. We sort of like try to create bigger and bigger forms. We have this, this thought of more but we, we keep applying it to Kali Yuga concepts. Our court system is more complicated. Our legislative system is more complicated. Our businesses are bigger. Um, even our thoughts of societies. We, we can't just think about making my neighborhood better. We have to think of a system that will transform everybody. And we have this other very false idea, which he just goes over and over and over again, which is that the same model will fit for everyone and that if it doesn't fit for everyone, somehow it's not good. And even in our society right now, we're very mixed up that way. And we also have become confused about where real change takes place. And he, he spends a lot of time, one of the reasons he deals so much with communism is not just about communism, but about the idea that crept in through communism that the ideal person is the plain laborer, not the intellectual, not the gifted person, not the artist, but that there's something that w- that our dedication must be to sort of the, the bottom of society. But um, that's never been the source of real um, transformation. And he's also trying to get us to understand that, and, and he describes it at great length in the next chapter when he talks a lot about how most people cannot initiate ideas. And that even in democracy, what what really works is when a few ideas are very clearly presented. So he's wanting us also to um, not be swept in by this idea that there's something better about uh, that there's some romantic gain from people who, uh, who do not have such a sophisticated intellectual or emotional or uh, artistic life. It's a very common thought. Swami himself describes it in his own own process of coming to the spiritual path in his own autobiography when he talks about how he grew so tired of intellectualism when he was a college student and he was looking so hard for a better way of life and he felt the materialism of uh, America was so distressing that he wanted to go to a simpler society. He wanted to go someplace where people were more real. So in his, uh, after one of his years of college, he went down to Mexico. And he decided that, in, that the Mexican people, sort of the simple peasant Mexican people, would, would give him a kind of reality that our complex society wouldn't have. And that's really not such a different thought than Marx is trying to put out here. You know, The common man is the laboring man, and he's the true hero of the people. But Swamiji said he just went there and very quickly realized that it, it, all that was motivating most people is, as he puts it, is that they, he put it into the book he's writing now, he said their lives are divided between the, the, the table, the barroom, and the bedroom. <laughs> you know, just eating, getting inebriated, and having sex. And just sort of following the instincts of, the, the, the most base instincts that the body Um, demand of us, but not really thinking uh, on a deeper level. But it's our aspiration that really move us, all of us, and that that's the ideal from which we spring. And Swami talks about how all these thoughts are woven together, and we haven't yet gotten to the chapter about Darwin, but this whole idea of our animalistic nature being our true nature. And there's a, a, a very strong movement in our culture now to become more and more animalistic in the name of becoming more and more real. You know, you see it in the movies and you see it in the sexual obsession that people have and just uh, the, bringing the culture down that, the, that that's the way to be. And he talks in here about um, the, the movie The Dream Girl and how it was a, the, the Broadway play about how um, high values were mocked. And we look at our culture now And it's sort of like, I find it very hard to see most modern movies, because they are so, for the most part, utterly devoid of moral content, that even though we don't think necessarily that these are communist films, but they're communist inspired, and I don't mean that in the paranoid sort of way, but they're inspired by that way of thinking, that idealism is really just not true, that people are really out for themselves on the lowest level and that that's where um, the real reality of life is I recall a a woman talking about the moral decline of our culture just uh, trying to help a young girl through this movie that they were watching and just observing in this movie that like five minutes into the movie the heroine who was some well-known fem- female actor, actress who's very much admired by young girls. Five minutes into the movie, she's having sex with someone she doesn't even know. I mean, it's just like, and it's just the given that sort of the animalistic side of us is the real side of us. And that you so many movies, so many plays, so many novels, um, whatever appears to be idealistic and good is always exposed to be bad and you end up with everybody is a bad person. And so there's just no commitment anymore, very little commitment anymore to this, even to the idea that aspiration is what we really are basing our lives on. And what he's trying to get at in this chapter is to realize that that's not human nature, and that what really fulfills us is not this commitment to the lowest dimension of our nature, but what really fulfills us is a commitment to the highest dimension. And there's so many different ways in which this sickness has been infecting us. He's just picking up um, a couple of them here. But without that sense of aspiration, and that's what he goes to as we go later into the book when he talks about human evolution and communities, you know, what is it, how do we really want to organize our society? And that's what—that's the question he's really asking. You know, what is the organizing principle around which we want to build our culture? What is really practical, and how will we determine that? And he talks about the false reasoning um, that Marx, for example, brought forward. He said, creating this this fraudulent opposition between capitalism and communism, when the real opposition is the tyranny of a few over the many, the imposition by a few over everyone else of this theoretical form of government, which was also Plato's uh, tyranny of a few, even though the idealism there was a little bit better. But um, he's trying to get us to really think what is the principles that we want to live by? Because what he's trying to recommend here is, uh, especially in this uh, first chapter, this chapter that we're reading tonight, is that we, we, we can't think necessarily in terms of transforming all of society, but we can certainly think about creating enclaves in which higher ideals can be expressed. Now, of course, we're living in one. And because some of us have been living this, in this so long, it seems natural to us. But when you really stand back uh, from the whole of society... I remember David and I having a conversation with... Um, Several of the, I think actually they were Unity ministers. In the local area, there was a man who used to be at one of the local Unity churches. Who was someone we'd known for years from before. We we were meeting him again after a long time, and we were discussing with him. We were just, in fact, at that time we were just starting this community here, and we were explaining to him that we were gathering members of our church together and we were going to make this community. And we were, you know, we were very excited about it. I'll never forget. He said, "Why?" Like, that, like why would you do that? And we sort of gave him some of the reasons, but he, he couldn't really get his mind around it. Um, he, he just wasn't, he wasn't seeing um, what benefit it would have for people of like mind to unite together. I think to him it only looked like um, that he would have to deal with the people in his church all the time. I think he wasn't so happy about that thought. You know, if we were to us, it was, we were trying to say, well, the people involved with Ananda want an environment that at all times is fostering the kind of consciousness they're trying to develop, and therefore this is desirable to, him, to them. Now, Swami also points out here that he's not talking about just one kind of community. Our community is based on self-realization through the practice of Kriya. But communities don't all have to be based on that. But as he writes later, they have to be based on some necessity for upward aspiration. And uh, there has to be some organizing principle that inspires. And it has to be related to human nature. And in order to do that, we have to break the hypnosis that these things don't work, or that because all of these false ideas have failed, that all ideas will fail. You know, there's this sort of... I I remember when we were starting this community in the first place, we had this meeting... um, we had this uh, all-day retreat, and, and we were in a big circle, not in this room, but in the a facility that we had prior to this. And there was ex- it was extremely dynamic, very, very positive energy. Um, we were keeping it that way. There was just a real flow, and a lot of people really believed that we could do this. And then just um, before lunch, somebody started talking about... Um, all the negative potentials of the situation. And then sort of once that door was open, the next person talked about all the other negative potentials. And I can't even remember what they were, but all the fears and all the dark things that could happen. By the time the third person started, you could just feel all the energy in the room, all the positive magnetism we built was just like leeching out, like people were shooting holes in the bucket. And the third person started to speak. And I've never done this before or since, but I had to. Right? Just like, just when he was getting going, I glanced at my watch. And I said, oh, look how late it is. It's time for lunch. Just like that. And just totally cut. The the man was mad at me for years. (laughs) But it it had to be done, because um, all of a sudden, people were losing hope in the positive, and we're just wanting again to go back into all those negative ways of thinking. And it was, it was almost like right in front of us, we were seeing the necessity for a community because we were seeing the need for people of like mind to get together and to reinforce theirsel- themselves in the values that were important to them. It was a very interesting moment. You remember, you were, was Stephanie, you were there? I was at work that day. You were at work that day. <laughs> it was a famous moment. By the time we came back, it was no longer an open forum. By the time we came back, we had it it all structured, because we just couldn't... We could see... And it's partly what Swamiji himself talks about when we get into the next chapter. You know, Swami puts a lot of emphasis on leadership. And he said it over and over and over again, the most difficult issue in the proliferation of communities is leadership. Because, he writes again, everything, every institution is the length and shadow of one person even says, communities need to be started by one dedicated individual and a few who are in tune with his ideals. And his whole story, the chapter last week about Machiavelli, by contrast, just talking over and over about what qualities are required for individuals to be able to inspire others to be able to do it. And leadership um, is a skill, and he also emphasizes so much in that last chapter, in the Machiavelli chapter, by contrast, that leadership is a specific skill that can be developed. And working with people in this particular way is something that you can think about it if you think about it in the right way and can do it. And often Swamiji really spends a lot of his time thinking, how can communities be started without leaders who have that much skill? And he even ponders, if Master said this idea will spread like wildfire, how can it possibly spread like wildfire since there's only a handful of people who can really establish communities? And one thought that Swami just said recently was that they could be very small. Communities could be very small, just, you know, uh, 15, 20 people, just a few families together. Master himself um, spoke of getting together with a few friends and buying land in the country and perhaps not, not being as ambitious, you know, in their model. And the second reality is once the thought form gets going, you know the, the first groups always have to establish everything, and through the history of Ananda, we 've had to establish everything. Even here, Swami has to work so hard to just break down very basic ideas, such as things such as the thought, that if it 's a good idea, it can be done on a mass scale and that 's why he starts you know living things begin small, and that you, you test out your ideas and you practice them in a small environment with like-minded people, instead of blowing up these big theories and then trying to impose them on everyone. He's, he's sort of trying to get us to be practical in this. You know, will it really work? If we're really going to establish these communities, can we do it, um, can we really make it happen? He, he, he points out quite obviously that even Christianity just started with one person. And it is really quite remarkable when you Think about the fact that what you, what you always point to as individuals. Even the communist system was started by a few individuals who had that thought first and put forward that thought. Everything begins in a little way. And in many ways simply loses its power. As he says, one of the worst things that happened to Christianity was that Constantine declared it the state religion. And so instead of it being a matter of individual inspiration it became ever thereafter a matter of um, mandate, state mandate. And I love what Swami says, mass conversions are a travesty, because how can a mass of people capture something that really has to be so much a matter of individual conscience? And it also just sort of takes us back from this thought that success is not necessarily measured by vast numbers of people. Success is measured by the depth or sincerity of a handful of people who, who really understand what they're doing. I mean, sometimes when we look at Ananda, we get caught in the thought that it needs to be larger than it is. I think part of that is that we need to be expansive in our thinking. And we, as individuals, need to keep reaching out and finding ways to communicate and touch other people's lives. But that doesn't mean it will necessarily be better for being bigger. In fact... Um, over some time at Ananda village there was sort of a sense that one of the things that happened at that community at a certain point was it got just a little too big and it just was difficult to keep track of it and after that, I mean the village is bigger than this but Swami spoke of about a hundred people it's about as big as a hundred people is as many people as can move as a group and even a hundred you start dividing into smaller vortices of energy I know at a certain point with Ananda Village he said we're just just too big to be small anymore and the only hope of being small is to get bigger (laughs) to get big enough to create small entities within it or even to break it up into smaller entities. One of Swamiji's uh, ideas that he proposed once for development was to develop many small communities all along Tyler Foot Road up there that was more based on the thought of Swamiji being there and the people not wanting to go far away. He's, he solved that by going to Europe. But that you would create just many little entities, neighborhoods or whatever you were going to call it, many small churches instead of a few large ones, because then they can really have the personality of the individuals involved. After that of necessity, they have to, you have to lose that individuality because you're, you're trying to move too many around. I know in our schools... They talk about the point at which the group of children it becomes more about managing the herd than it is about relating to the individuals and sort of what that critical mass is where it's traffic control more than it is real education. And so again one of the thoughts we have to have in our mind is that small is beautiful and that the very nature of community may demand that it remain little rather than that the whole world absorb it. And merely the fact that the whole world doesn't embrace it doesn't mean that isn't still the ideal which should strive for <clears throat> i'd like to take a short break if i may the next section living things begin small again swami a lot of what swamiji is talking about here is leadership and and he and he's talking about leadership on many levels that are very interesting he's talking about um, you know, what kind of a leader can be effective? And he talks about the necessity for a leader, to, as he puts it, to live what he preaches, which is a sort of an obvious statement, but so much of the time we're willing to believe people who don't actually embody what it is they're expressing. And again, these are these crazy sort of missteps that get going in our mentality, where you, you really, you can't if someone doesn't believe enough in what they're saying to actually live it themselves, then you have to be very suspicious about it. Not that you have to uh, judge them for it, but you have to be very suspicious about embracing it. Anybody can spin out theories. It's, just, it's very easy to just write something that sounds good, but it's very much more difficult to write something that a person can actually live by. And that's the magnetism um, of Ananda, really, is that it's not it, it isn 't about what people say they 're doing it 's about what people are actually doing, and oftentimes they don 't really articulate it very well, but you see it after a while I know it's uh, it 's always it 's been sort of fun for me over the years because it, it takes a while to trust it, and I watch people sort of gradually go through years and just realizing the quality of the friendship and the quality of the spiritual teaching and the quality of the commitment to one another is just unusual it's not, uh, it's not what you find in, an, in any other setting but it's really based on the, on, uh, on really understanding the practical value of what we're doing and why wouldn't we do it this way and, and Swami talks about uh, uh, the uh, the power that comes there's a sentence here that i just particularly loved he talks about how the the balance between this is a paragraph that i marked he said no human beings can be forced to behave contrary to their own nature which is to say you can't i guess what i was saying earlier you can't just tell people that this is how they have to behave he said at the same time if you just stand back and let everybody do what they want to do you also don't make any progress. And it, this is the line that Swamiji is always trying to draw between this tremendous respect for personal diversity and freedom and the fact that we are going somewhere. And, and that's the, uh, the unique contribution, in a sense, that Ananda and the path of self-realization have. It's, it's not that there is no direction, but nor is it so that you can regiment the way that direction will be found. And he said you can at least... Um, Uh, inspire people in the right direction. You might not be able to inspire them all the way to the goal, but you can inspire them in the right direction. And then he gives, especially if the one guiding them, as he says, views the people he's relating to as dear to him rather than outside the circle of his sympathy. Now think how, what a contrast that is to what he was talking about earlier. He was talking about Stalin and others like that. I mean, the people are mere statistics, People are mere statistics, and if they don't fit in with the plan, then they are literally annihilated, and millions of of people have been killed. Part of what he's also trying to stir us to is is a a sense of outrage at what what has been done in the name of these ideal societies so we don't get confused between mass murder and genuine inspiration. But just the simple phrase that the people he is guiding can't be outside the circle of his sympathy. And any one of us who finds ourselves in a leadership position, you have to always think that. You know, am I treating these people as things that are outside the circle of my sympathy? And once again, you look at the miracle of Swami's leadership of so many people, is that he always considers everyone to be within the circle of his sympathy. And you just feel that. You feel like you're not being sacrificed. And in fact, Once when he was asked, what is the role of the spiritual director of Ananda? He said, to protect the individuals from the institution. (laughs) Isn't that an interesting answer for the person who's the head of the institution, (laughs) in a sense? But he said it so that there's never any thought that the organization takes precedence over the needs of the people because there is no such thing as, uh, as, as that. I mean, sometimes people can't always get what they want because there has to be a moving force, but you can still um, keep them within the circle of your sympathy. And then he talks about, he goes for this long thing about people power, which is a very interesting phrase. And, he's just, and he starts talking about um, mass movements and mob psychology and emotions and things like that. And it, it's actually very subtle what he's talking about here, because most of us are not out with lynch mobs and we're not part of the French Revolution anymore or anything like that, although some of us may have been. In fact, a psychic told me that one of the reasons that I have to talk so much now is that I used my persuasive abilities to persuade people to the wrong things she actually said, I helped start the French Revolution. (laughs) Whether that's true or not, I don't know. I hope even then I was wiser than that. But uh, having persuaded people to do the wrong thing, I have to continually try to persuade them to do the right thing now, which would be the karmic retribution for that sort of wrong action. But Swami um, tries to make this difference between the emotionalism that can um, organize a group. And he he says this single phrase that the best thing that mob emotion can produce is the feeling that somebody ought to do something and that was that was sort of a, a a more recognizable response you know how many times have you been with groups of people where you all end up feeling that somebody ought to do something and that we're going to see that somebody does something but no individual actually is inspired with a solution And one of the things that Swamiji emphasizes that the role of the leader has to be is to keep people solution-oriented. And being solution-oriented is another one of those sort of Ananda mottos that has been such a part of the way we operate. There's a, a thought form that's very prevalent in our society that unless you're focused on the problems, you're not really going to be able to solve them. But the difficulty with that is that when you are oriented toward problems you tend to just see more problems. And it's sort of like a whole mindset. I remember when I was uh, giving a seminar in a corporate setting and I wanted people to focus on their strengths. And I think about how they were going to put dynamic energy into their strengths. And I found that people for the most part, couldn't do that. They could only talk to me about their weaknesses, and they could only talk to me about the problems that they were facing. They couldn't talk about the solutions that were inherent within them to solve those problems, because there was this enormous sense that if I don't focus on the negative, I'm being irresponsible, and that there's no way for um, the problem will never be solved. But Swamiji points out that the job of the leader is to keep the energy going in a positive magnetic way. Because it's really the energy of solutions that draw more solutions. And the energy of problems just draw the energy in a downwardly spiraling manner. And so he, he gives that responsibility to those who are in charge. And he also speaks to the fact that most people are problem-oriented. That's just the way the mind works. And he, he talks about... Um, uh, Sort of the way you run a group situation of, of, and he 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 attacks a number of sacred cows such as brainstorming sessions, and saying if you're in charge of something, don't ever say to a group of people, "What shall we do?" It's just sort of interesting the way he says that. Don't ever say to a group unless you already have a clear idea of what you should do. And just I've watched over the years with Swamiji that he he draws people's energy in, and he describes. He's so interesting what he articulates here. He talks about how most people cannot really initiate a new idea, that they have to rely upon others. There's only a handful of people who can really create new things. But many people can improve upon existing ideas. He said, especially if you give them the opportunity. And then he adds the other thing. Many people have good insights, but they don't have the habit of being able to articulate their thoughts. But if you give them the opportunity, especially through one-on-one conversation, and really listen, then you can find sometimes that people have a lot to contribute. Now, all of this also indicates, it's not merely specifically of interest, but it also indicates the extreme care for the individual that an effective leader needs to have. And any of us who've been fortunate enough in any circumstance to be with an effective leader realize that that kind of care is needed or else individuals end up feeling that uh, they're not part of it. I've known for years Swamiji will call lots and lots of people or have meetings or draw people to his house. You'll bring up a subject and he'll, he used to say, I'm mean, not anymore. Why don't you come to my house at four o'clock for tea? That's what he would say. And he would just draw a group of people in and hear, hear everybody out. But you never had the sense that the decision was up for grabs. You never had the decision that we were just hoping that if a bunch of us get together, we'll think of something. You know. And Swami also says that real ideas have to come out of a sense of inspiration. And that he, he mentions, he said, once that inspiration is there, you often, he said, I often find myself, he writes, brushing aside people's brainstorms because there's this true idea that, that just has so much more power than that. And so he's also um, really sort of trying to explain to us this delicate balance between how you really involve people and, and what it is for people to really be involved in a way that's meaningful and not a way that just allows people to, what Swamiji once called, the sharing of mass ignorance, which is not necessarily, sometimes people consider that everybody needs to be allowed to do that. But Swami has this unusual way, uh, and he he hints at it here without being completely explicit, but it's true, is that he's very attentive as long as the individuals involved are making an attempt to tune in. But if they're only just talking from their own reality without making any attempt to tune in, he's he's not patient with it at all. And even more so, if the energy that they're putting out is... um, pulling the energy down in in the way like I was talking about at at that meeting, when all of a sudden the opportunity for people to speak was destroying the forward momentum. And so he's also talking here about that the leader has a responsibility to help everyone and not merely to just let things go the way anybody wants them to go. That whoever has the clearest vision has to keep people going in that vision. That's what was going on in that, um, that meeting I was referring to at the beginning. That there were a great many of us in the room. In, in that case it was a very interesting situation because now having an Ananda community seems like a self-evidently desirable thing. But David and I were quite surprised in the group of us who were, who were for it how many people didn't see it necessarily as a good thing they were very nervous about it, they thought bad things would happen to them, people who'd never lived in a community. But we knew that if we could just establish it, just get it going, um, it would work. And at those meetings, there were just a lot of people who had ideas that weren't practical. Either they were fear-based ideas or they weren't practical ideas. And it was such a delicate thing to just keep the momentum going and not let it get sucked away. And so he talks about he's talking about the role of the leader to understand human nature sufficiently to respond in a practical way. And so that's back to um, what he was saying at the beginning. It's not a question of whether it sounds good. The question is, will it work? And he makes reference to consensus versus a group that really has a leader. He says, consensus will work as long as not much energy commitment is required. But if much energy commitment is required, there's always going to be one person or a very small group who know where you're going and have to pull the others along. Um, He also has this single point. He says this in his other leadership book, too. He says, "Um, sometimes any decision, I think he phrases it almost like this, Sometimes any decision short of absolute madness is preferable to more discussion. (laughs) And he says there comes a time when a decision simply has to be made or else what he describes, the hamlet complex will set in. Which is where we work so hard to make this little decision perfect that we lose, again, the momentum. I I learned that from David because I used to be much more concerned about every little thing that happened. And I saw for him that he saw that we're working with as a flow of energy. And if we stop that flow of energy, we lose everything. And so we, we get obsessed about some small issue and we haggle it to death, but we don't observe that in haggling that small energy to death, we're losing all the positive momentum that we need to make any decision go forward. And very often, little things don't matter nearly as much. That's why he said, any decision short of absolute madness. So, and he also says... Um, that you have to understand, as he puts it, that truth can't be voted into existence. That, And one of the principles that he's talking about here that's always been part of Ananda is to try to get people to tune in to what's trying to happen. In other words, to realize that there is a, a direction that we're all trying to go together that isn't just based on everybody's opinion of what we should do. And that's where he's saying that emotion really clouds that thought. Too much emotion makes it impossible for us to feel it in that um, kind of a sensitive way. Um, And this is, again, if a community is to succeed, it must begin with one sincere person, backed by a few others, dedicated to the same concepts. And the ideas must be offered in the form of invitations. And this is back when he, at the very beginning, he was saying, people aren't won by force, people are won by the conversion of their own consciousness. And those of, those of us who aspire to transform society in any way must make what we're asking of people attractive. And the most uh, powerful way to make it attractive is by experience. And so he, was, he also ends at the end saying that, you know, that this culture at this time is in such a state of confusion that we can't really expect to fix it completely but he so sweetly says we can at least make it a little bit better. Is it too much to expect that we can make it a little bit better? And even just small groups of people, a few small groups working together, people will gradually see it. It's very interesting to contemplate Master's words that, that you know small cooperative communities based on spiritual principles, he said, are the social pattern of the future. It's really hard to sort of think about how that's really going to come about, isn't it? And that was again why Swami has often said that what's going on with Ananda in our communities is one of the most important things that's happening for our society at this time, because we are showing that it can be done, and that it's just so natural and easy to do, and that other people will be able to look at that example and say, well, they're doing it. And so many of the dilemmas of our age would be solved by that. The loneliness, the lack of moral structure, the difficulty with children, the Breakup of the traditional family, the desire for a more holistic spirituality, and if hard times come and this whole lifestyle is unsustainable, the capacity to just live so much more economically because, uh, because so much can be shared. When people come into our community, there's often this thought form that if you live in an apartment, it has to be your own, it's your own world, and those apartments are very cheesy and small. And you think, how can I make my home this? And of course, in some situations they simply are too small, it just doesn't work, or it's not the right lifestyle. But uh, the reality is that the whole place is yours, because we're not used to having harmonious energy all around us. You know, our sense of how much space we need is based on the fact that at the edge of what's mine there's hostility. Now, I mean, that's not always true. Uh, And at Ananda Village, of course, they don't live in an apartment style. Ananda village they have individual homes because there's no uh, there's nothing wrong with having individual homes you know it's when we came here when we came uh, to this area from Ananda village the Ananda style of living in Palo Alto was this one giant house in fact it was this house in Atherton a summer home that we lived in year-round which had just a few bathrooms and shared rooms and it was rugged and uh but, but the definition of Ananda in this area was living in that house, and all the people who didn't want to live in that house or couldn't live in that house, there was the slight sense that they weren't really sincere, in the same way that there was the slight sense that if you didn't live in Ananda village, you weren't sincere, all of which, of course, is completely false. So now we have this apartment community, and we don't want the thought form to grow that you have to be able to live in this apartment community or else you're not sincere, because that's not really the truth. But nonetheless, it's a certain lifestyle, and and there's many other kinds of communities that could be formed. Um, It's the ideals that unite it that really define it, and that's what we're looking for. And the idea of community is that unity of purpose and the the mutual support that it gives. But it also is a very practical thing in a, a completely physical way, but not the same style works for everyone, and that's what... Swami is saying here and part of what we have to recognize is we have to be creative in our thinking we have to say well we can do it this way we can do it this way we can do it this way we can do it that way we can take these same ideals and put them into all different forms um, because everything starts small everything can be done in its own way it doesn't all have to be a mass movement and uh, um I just love what he says that it can be a variety, each community an expression of noble aspirations and high ideals. You know, so many people in the world don't even think about that. But noble aspirations and high ideals are what life is based on. And that's the promise that uh, Swami offers us in our hope for a better world. So I think that's all I have to say tonight. Are there any questions or comments before we go? Great call. I, want to hear you. I say people often feel they need a lot of space of their own because at the borders of what they consider, what they can control, they feel that the world is hostile to okay. them. People come into our community and we say, well, you can live in this small apartment because this is really a room in a big house. You, know, you, can, you And you can. You can live much smaller because you don't have to have all this buffer zone right. okay. because the people around you are people whose vibrations you want to be near. When we first moved to, to Palo Alto... When we first moved into our own house here in this area before we had the community, we moved out of the big house into another house. And we had somebody taking care of the lawn because it was a rented house. And I remember the first time I looked out the window and about four feet away was this man doing the lawn. I had no idea who he was. I'd never seen him before. I just knew nothing about him. And it, like, it jarred my nervous system because I had been living at Ananda Village for like 16 years and there was almost never anybody that close to my space whose vibration wasn't uh, compatible I mean, who, who wasn't personally known to me and whose vibration wasn't the same and I mean, it was a naive reaction in a certain sense but I, I just still remember just suddenly having this sense like that and it just was not like my, it made me appreciate what a privilege it is to have a community you know, and in that sense, they have all that land and it's such a huge thing. Ours is much more insular and we do have people who take care of the property that we don't know. I mean, that aren't a part of Ananda. But we know them now because they're still there. But still, it's... Uh Let me say how to put it. One of the things that first happened to me when I came to Ananda Village at the very, very beginning, when I moved to the seclusion retreat and I hardly ever left for many months... And I had moved there from San Francisco. And I used to ride the Geary Express bus down to Montgomery Street from the sunset where I lived. And I lived at Ananda Village for months and hardly ever left. I realized how many layers of my consciousness were constantly engaged in putting up protective shields. And, and over months, just my whole sense of my inner self began to shift as uh, that the tension required to maintain those shields began to go down. Now the process that I've followed over many years is first releasing those shields and becoming more receptive and then building up inner magnetism that was based on a positive flow of energy that essentially had the same effect as those shields, if you know what I mean that you have, you're generating enough energy of your own that you don't feel vulnerable. Whereas before there was no energy of my own so the only way to protect was, by, was defensively. But that's what the concept of an ashram is about. You go and you build up an inner magnetism that creates a movement of energy that radiates. And so there's like a transition period where you have to sort of work with that. But the first step was just to realize how closed energy was because of having always felt on the defensive in the world that I'd lived in and uh, so communities of course solve that to a great extent and uh, for children and so on there's a little boy in the, in the Seattle community, there's basically one child he's a year and a half Chandan Kushler who's, a, who's quite an amazing lad his aunt said to him Chandan, you're going to do great and wonderful things in your life and Chandan said you are correct laughter <laughs> but uh, and he's, he's very precocious, but partly because of his nature and partly because he's the only child in the community, everybody dotes on him. And from when he could toddle around, he just relates to everyone. And you know, because he's so little, he both basically relates to legs and knees and just kind of relates to them. And whosoever they belong to, the person will relate to him. Well, he was just out at the park or somewhere, and he just went up to all the knees and legs around him and was quite surprised that they neither knew him nor immediately responded to him because he was just used to living in a world in which everybody around him was there for him. And, I mean, quite apart from the question of relating to bad people. But you can also see what a dynamic energy that sets up for a person. And um, inasmuch as we as devotees are trying to see all the world as our friend and to recognize God in everyone it's easier to start where it's easier. And, and just develop that capacity through... And when I speak of community, I'm not just talking about physical place, but the whole family that we live in. You just sort of develop that trust where it's easier, and then you develop the inner magnetism that can either convert others to that reality, even if they're reluctant, or give you the discernment, whatever it might be. What you see in Swamiji is... the the power to move through the world with that vibration and people responding to it because he can just create it with his own strength. But uh, it's something devoutly to be cultivated, that's for sure. Okay, any other questions or comments? All right, that'll do it. I think next week we read, what? Adam Smith, 10 pages. Chapter 6, that's going to be a tough one. Do we have any comments or questions before we start from last week or anything that you read that you would like me to comment on? I've, um, <clears throat> I was listening to President Bush on the television, watching him on television just before I came tonight, uh, having picked up the morning paper and uh, seen the Swedish inspector, the United Nations inspector from Sweden, having reported to the Security Council... Uh, in a much more much more strongly negative terms about um, the disarming of Iraq that obviously set the tone for the President to be able to speak extremely strongly this evening about the necessity to act in some warlike manner um, last night in our one of our uh, satsang groups, the lay members, we had a very long discussion, which was the second Monday in a row that we had a very long discussion about. Um, war in Iraq, and what uh, what is the appropriate self-realization response. Uh, interestingly, in the Palo Alto Ministers Association, which is a group that David and I uh, are, attend, uh, that we belong to, we didn't actually discuss it, but at the end of... Uh, toward the end of the meeting with the 20 or so clergy people, from ranging from us to the Latter-day Saints, and sort of everything that you can imagine in between... Uh, So it's a very diverse group, um, theologically, and we're all part of what what this wonderful phrase that people have come up with, the faith community. And uh, I love that now. (laughs) President Bush uses that too. I don't know where it started, but it's a nice one. Or faith-based communities. And that that you sort of like, respect everybody. It's a very clever phrase. Everybody has faith in something. Um, Somebody was passing out, I think the Quakers were passing out their usual peace march sort of literature. And the woman from the Latter-day Saints raised the question, what do you do, she was asking all of us, when your congregation is so diverse in your opinions? Um, how do you as a clergy person, what do you represent? You know, do you, Can you go on these peace marches with a sign from your church? Because there had been prior to that uh, something we did not participate in, which was a big demonstration in Palo Alto, in which they wanted Uh, clergy people to come with signs representing their congregations. But she raised the very real question, if it's not a tenet of your faith, um, how can you stand there and say that our church says this when your congregation can be so diverse? We had no discussion on the issue uh, because it was too late to discuss it. But it was a very interesting question. And in the discussions that I've been having for the last couple of weeks, people have sort of been asking, essentially, and I'm beginning to appreciate how complex that question is for people. For me it's not complicated because I dismiss it as irrelevant. Um, I just, I don't feel compelled to have an opinion in a certain sense. Although if the country goes to war it may be different than that. Now having spent many hours already in the last seven days discussing that subject, that's not my intention tonight. Although I believe it also came up big time in this class. But, but I, um, in an earlier session, but I have been trying to find a, get a grip myself on this particular book. At Sunday service I made reference to the fact that I have felt myself a little bit dry. At the first class I, that I was here, there have been three, I felt very like I got it. I understood what this book was about. The last two I myself have felt like I've just been kind of um, wandering around looking for the hook I mean, the gift of gab is given to me so I can wander around and still keep the words going and even some of them string together in a relatively coherent way. But I myself have felt a, difficult, a difficulty in grasping the point because Swamiji has done an extraordinary thing here. He's written the entire book without talking about God. And it's just like, so I don't have my usual sort of way of going at it. It's not like God alone or Whispers from Eternity where we were just like there and everybody was in it, and we just knew just exactly what we were doing, and the class was twice as large because everybody cared, right? <laughs> when we're talking about um, communism, Machiavelli, these are not like subjects that the devotee immediately thinks of, oh, goody, goody, you know, we'll do the Om technique, then we'll practice Kriya, then we'll talk about Machiavelli. It just doesn't like, <laughs> there aren't any, Master hasn't written any chants with his name in it or anything like that. It's just, it's very, very tricky, and I've sort of approached it a little bit like this, too. And oddly enough, after each class, like in the week, intervening week, all these ways of tying it together kind of have come to me. But in, in each class, I've had a little bit of difficulty. And it was grim facing Adam Smith. You know, who I never even heard of Adam Smith until Swami wrote this book, because I'm not an educated person. You know, he was an economist concerned with the rights of factory workers, which was a laudable thing. You know, And he wrote a book about... I now know because I've studied this chapter so carefully. He wrote an influential book about the value of goods and how labor should be respected and so on like that. What he was really trying to say is that the people who put their labor in it create the value and therefore you have to value the people who put their labor into it. And his intention was good. But more than that, especially reading this one, and coupled with the discussions that we've been having over the last few weeks... And, and I'm adding one more piece to this. Swamiji, over all these years that, you know, we've all been with him now.